a great privilege to be back here again. I think it's uh, my third or fourth time. Um, and uh, I've been trying to get away from a message that the Lord laid on my heart. Because when I looked up my records, I preached this message here in January 2012. And uh, it won't come out exactly the same because I'm merging it with another message. But uh, if you could tell the person next to you, this message is for you. <laughs> I, I travel a lot, and uh, like you guys, I love my local church. But uh, when I go out, I, I go out with a purpose. So I really expect people to get something. That's my purpose in traveling and coming here. So I'm really expecting, uh, you know, us to receive something this morning as I share this message. And like I said, I'll be merging it with another message as well. Uh, so uh, as uh, Nigel said, I had a little scrape on the way here. So maybe you could stretch your hands towards me. Pray for me as I pray for you. Yeah? Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to share your word together that we do so frequently. We just pray uh, that you will be active by your spirit, giving revelation, giving insight, giving wisdom, speaking into our lives so that we'll find fresh motivation uh, that will affect our everyday living from Monday to Saturday and, and not just on Sunday. So let your kingdom come. It will be done. I thank you for New Life in Wembley that's praying for us today and we pray for them and ask you to bless them and use them powerfully there. Bless everyone, Lord, under the sound of my voice. I just take authority over the evil one. I bind you in Jesus' name. And I loose each one to receive what you have for them in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, I'm going to be reading from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Just a couple of lines about me. Uh, Denise and myself, we just celebrated 40 years of marriage and 35 years in the ministry. Uh, we, we've got <laughs> three grown-up children, six grandchildren. Uh, if you want to know where I'm from, I'm a mixture of Danish, French, Portuguese, and Indian. So uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a mixture. Praise the Lord. And uh, yeah, my granddad was from Denmark. That's how I get a Danish name. Uh, I've been pastoring New Life for 35 years, and uh, I travel a lot. 2 Chronicles 7. Uh, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement, and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. Uh, I think this is a very powerful scripture. because It says when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. If you think about it, here was Solomon praying on the earth. And uh, you know his prayer is listed in the previous chapter. He prayed a long prayer dedicating the temple. And as he was praying on earth, it says something left heaven. I mean, that's where God the Father is and all the angels are and all the patriarchs are. And that's the place we're heading towards. That's the place that Mary is in right now. Uh, and one of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 
chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. One of the conversations I had with Mary, I said uh, when she was not so ill, I said, if you get to heaven before me, tell my mom I'm looking forward to seeing her. To me, heaven is very real. It's, uh, that's where, if you look at my WhatsApp, it says I'm on my way to heaven. Because that's where I'm going. Amen? I've, uh, I've got married. I've had the children, raised the grandchildren, been there, done it. And now my next destination is heaven. You think that's a good thing? Yes. Well, this amazing is that when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. Uh, you know, uh, the fire actually left, if you think about it, actually left heaven in response to his prayer, and it came down upon them. And, and uh, as a result of his prayer, the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter. Uh, you know, we long to see those things happening today, don't we? I've heard stories. Uh, I was in uh, Israel, and um, uh, I went to the church where Ruth Heflin was ministering, very powerful woman of God, and they hold camps, you know, used to hold camps because she's with the Lord now. Incidentally, this lady, Ruth Heflin, uh, traveled to every nation on earth before she died and prophesied over the leader of that nation. So she was quite an unusual woman. And, uh, you know, uh, just going there and listening to her uh, and the way she prayed for Israel all those years was a, it was a great inspiration. Uh, but, you know... Uh, to think that you can pray on the earth and something can leave heaven and come down and hit you is just, just amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned this quote last time I was here. We asked, uh, a great man of God was asked once, what's the secret of your success? It seems that whenever you minister, the Holy Spirit shows up. And he was asked this question. Actually, my friend Doug Williams told me that he'd spoken to him. And... Uh, he said, what's the secret of your success? Because when you minister, God seems to come into the room. What's the secret? And his answer was, much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer. And he smiled. And, uh, you know, that is true wherever you look. Uh, wherever there's much prayer, you will find much Holy Spirit activity. The two go together. Wherever you find little prayer, you'll find very little Holy Spirit activity. And that's wherever you look, whether you look in the mirror, whether it's in your life, if there's little prayer, there'll be very little Holy Spirit activity. I've been a pastor for 36 years, and I can tell you, uh, I know it's true experientially. I know people who pray and people who don't pray. Uh, I know people who really pray. I know uh, one of our intercessors is a woman that used to pray for a ministry, and her, her job description was that she prayed eight hours a day. You know, and uh, she thinks that's fairly normal. But the average Christian uh, struggles to pray. I know that that's true. And the average Christian uh, doesn't have a very strong prayer life. And the average Christian doesn't dwell in the secret place of the Most High. In Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I've, I've written a book called The Rewards of the Secret Place. Uh, and you see, a lot of the stuff that happens in Psalm 91 happens to the person who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. 
That is the person who experiences a thousandfold at their left hand, ten thousand at their right hand, but it doesn't touch them. Whenever they call, the Lord answers. He's with them in trouble. He delivers them and honors them. You know, Psalm 91 is a psalm most of us know by heart. But I think this is very interesting, and I believe it's true. Wherever you look, whether it's in your own life, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your family, uh, you know, a family that prays together, stays together, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a locality, whether it's in a nation or on a continent, wherever there's little prayer, there will be very little Holy Spirit activity. Because there's an intrinsic link between much prayer and the power of God coming. And you see that in the scripture. When Solomon finished praying, fire came from heaven and the glory of the Lord came in there. You know, And that's what we felt when we went to Ruth Heflin's church there in Israel. The glory of God. Uh, you know, it wasn't a big church of 30, 40 people. But the presence of God was so strong as you walked in there. And it was a place of much prayer and much praise and worship. You know, I, I often tell the story, and I may have said this here in January 2012. A friend of mine, quite an extrovert English evangelist, very confident and very knowledgeable with Scripture, uh, tells a story how he was preaching somewhere many years ago. Somewhere in the Midlands, he was speaking at a youth convention. And the way it panned out, uh, when he went there, uh, most of the youth that were there were not Christians. They were visitors that came in. And he says how he stood up to speak one night. He was there for two nights. And uh, uh, he tried uh, to communicate with these youth, but because there were more non-Christians there than Christians, he really struggled to get their attention and get them to listen. And some of them were moving around and talking to each other. And he's an experienced man of God, and he he tried, he said, everything he knew to try and get that meeting to go where he wanted it to go. And he felt at the end that he had failed, that he hadn't fully communicated with those youth that night. And he went home and he was feeling very low. But the next morning, uh, he got up at 6 o'clock in the morning with a friend. They went out into the field. They found a little hut, hut where he was. And from 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night, they prayed nonstop. And they prayed so loud and with so much passion that was coming out of their belly that a local farmer came to find out what was happening. And these guys are English. <laughs> Reserved. And they went into the meeting that night. The, a lot of youth were there and there seemed to have been more youth and they looked bigger and uglier than the previous day. And uh, he got up to speak. And uh, as he began to speak... Uh, some of the youth tried to talk to each other. And as they tried to talk to each other, there seemed to be an unseen force in the room that stopped them from doing it. They couldn't engage in conversation. They couldn't move around. The whole uh, tenor of the meeting was different to the previous day. The presence of God was there. And as he preached, they all listened to him. And when he gave the altar call, many of the young people who were there the previous evening came forth weeping and gave their lives to Christ. So what was the difference between the first meeting and the second meeting? Much prayer. Much prayer. Much power. Little prayer. Little power. No prayer. No power. Wherever you look. In your life. In your marriage. In your home. In your family. You know, one of the things that the enemy, you know, he's attacked our family many times over the years. My son John, you know, he was in jail twice. 
got into a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, people know my testimony. My youngest daughter, uh, you know, had a child out of wedlock. And we had our struggles and our prayer projects and our days of fasting and weeping uh, over the years. But uh, just recently, in the last 18 months, on a Sunday, if you come to our house after a service, you'll find Angela, John, and Sarah, my three children, and their spouses, and my six grandchildren, sitting in the room after we've had lunch, and we all pray. And I pray, and my wife prays, and Angela prays, and John prays, and Sarah prays. Then Chanel prays, and you know, the, sometimes there's one or two missing. And we all pray one by one. And then the, the grandkids pray. And then Blake, you know, he's just turned three, and he's two. He, he mumbles on and says the same thing over and over again. You have to stop him. But he's learning how to pray. Because he, he wants to be part of what's happening. And, and as I look around the room, I, I'm just amazed because 15 years ago, I could not conceive that such a thing could happen in my family. When my son was drinking, when he's getting in trouble with the police, when my daughter was away from the Lord. I, I didn't see a day, although I was praying for it, where they would be married, where they would settle down, where they'd have good marriages, and where they'd have children, and where we'd all be praying together. Only God can do that. Come on, give him a, a hand clap of praise. You see, much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. Wherever you look, uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 2. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I just read uh, a couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. It says, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Thank God that we don't have to offer up sacrifices for sin because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and he's paid for sin. But even in this new covenant, in the, these new, in the New Testament, in these days, we are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. And the whole thing about a sacrifice is that it costs you something. And the thing about a sacrifice is that uh, whenever you see sacrifices in the Old Testament, as the sacrifice would go up, God would respond and come down. You see that over and over and over again with the patriarchs and so on. And one of the sacrifices that is acceptable, you know, the sacrifice of praise, there's, there's prayer, there's fasting, there's, there's all kinds of sacrifices that we offer. But if you decide to become a person of prayer, if you're not that already, it'll cost you something. You know, when my alarm goes off in the morning, I don't jump out of bed and say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I say that later on in the day. But when my alarm goes off, I often say, oh, no. And, uh, you know, uh, when people ask me if I had a good sleep, I always say, well, I could have done with more. But I have discovered that when I give up a little bit of sleep to be with God, I get so much out of it that you could not stop me from doing it. And I, I want to spend the rest of my life motivating people to taste that beautiful thing that God does. And if you decide to spend quality time with the Lord, and uh, I believe it's something that we benefit from, you'll never be the same again. I often say, you know, you get these leaflets and you see them 
not this leaflet because this is a good one. Uh, you get leaflets like this where, you know, you get uh, people, a famous speaker is coming to some church down the road and uh, they mention his name, you know, Reverend Mambo Jumbo from the Congo or something. And uh, I'm only joking. If you're from the Congo, no offense. Uh, and, you know, you, you mention, you get, and it says he's a great prophet and he's this. And you come to the meeting, you'll never be the same again. I've been to lots of those meetings. But two weeks later, I'm the same again. You know, and they say you'll never be the same. I should ask your money back, you know, offering back, really. <laughs> you'll never be the same again. But the thing is that if you decide to dwell in the secret place of the Most High, which is part of you abiding in Him, you will never be the same again. You will never be the same again. I not only know that experientially, I know it from observing members of my family, observing leaders around me, and observing the saints over many, many years. I think I told the story here about my daughter, Angela. She's now 39, about to become 40. She thinks she's growing old. And she's married with two boys. Uh, Nathan is 17. Thinking of going to Cambridge. We're very proud of him. And uh, Ethan, uh, both doing very well. And when Angie was 12 years old, uh, she was bullied at school. And she just happened to go to high school, you know, the first day. I seem to remember telling the story here. And the first day, some, she looked at some girls the wrong way, or they looked at her the wrong way, and they seemed to pick on her. And they started picking on her. She'd just gone to high school, you know. We really need to pray for our children when they go from, uh, into high school because that transition is, can be very traumatic. They go from being the biggest and the strongest in their school to being the smallest and the weakest in high school. And it's a very traumatic time for them, for many of them in many ways. And these girls, there were five of them, started picking on her. As she would walk down the corridor, they'd bump into her and say, sorry. And then uh, she'd be lining up to get some food or something, and they'd kick her. And she didn't know who kicked her. She'd come home crying and say, Mom, Dad, I, I don't want to stay in that school. You know, teenagers teenage are like, I hate that school. I don't want to go to that school. Please take me out of that school. And uh, this carried on. But, you know, I had a habit that I developed many years ago when my kids were young. That every single day that I was there, and I wasn't traveling a lot in those days, uh, before they went to bed, I would lay my hands on them and bless them. And say something like, I bless you in the name, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. And every one of my kids, I would pray for them and bless them every single night. And uh, I was praying for Angela one day, and I, I thought I heard the Lord say, leave her in that school. And so that was obviously one of our options to take her out of the school. But when the Lord had said that, we knew we had to work this one through. So she was in the school. She was going to school. We tried everything uh, that we could do practically. We went and spoke to the headmaster, spoke to the teacher, spoke to one of the parents of one of the girls. We tried everything we did. We prayed a little here and prayed a little there. But nothing changed. And she was very unhappy, and it was a family crisis. And so... One day I called Angela over and I said, Angela, I'm going to teach you how to pray. She was 12 years old. And I, I made it very simple. She was baptized in the Holy Spirit. She spoke in tongues uh, from the age of seven. And so she had that gift. 
And I said, I just want to break it and make it down very simple for you. Read your Bible for 20 minutes. Pray in English for 20 minutes. And I told her how, using the Lord's Prayer format. And then pray in tongues for 20 minutes. And commit your day to the Lord before you go to school. I heard her alarm going off in the morning. She got up. She spent an hour with God and went to school. I remember a second or third day, her coming down. I heard her door slam. She went in and spent a second hour with God. I think that would come under the definition of much prayer. And as she prayed, she did that for a week. And this had gone on for weeks. As she did that, that week, and as she was spending time alone with the Lord, spending that hour with Him every day, something happened to those girls' heart. They stopped bullying her. They became her friends. And they remained her friends for the entire time of her schooling. And because they were big, muscular, ugly girls, no one bothered her. She had mafia protection. (laughs) I say that jokingly. But she actually was friends with those girls. And the turnaround was much prayer in Angela's life. Much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. No prayer, no power. Wherever you look, in your life, in your family, in your church, in your workplace. I remember in our workplace at Wembley, our office was in a mess before I was a full-time pastor. I went full-time in the ministry in August 1981. But I remember the mess our office was in. People, I worked in the unemployment benefit office. People would come into the office and bang the counter and shout and, you know, their, their gyros in those days before everything was properly computerized. If they hadn't arrived, they were angry and they wanted to fight with you and argue with you. There were times when we had to call the police. And uh, there was a lot of tension in our office. And I remember, cut a long story short, there was three of us, another Christian and another Christian girl that joined uh, the office, and we started to pray together regularly. And within a few months, the whole office changed, the atmosphere changed. And there was no more people banging on the counter and shouting. Uh, Everything was functioning more or less like clockwork, and we became the second best office in the whole of our London region. It's because we prayed. You know, much prayer, much power, little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. You won't forget that. You might forget me, but you won't forget that. I want to read read a little bit here. This is about a revival that broke out in the U.S. in the 1800s. Incidentally, I turned on the TV last night and Lauren Cunningham was preaching because he's the founder of YWAM. I thought, well, he must have something good to say. Uh, he's such a, you know, a, a British, uh, he's such a Christian icon, forming YWAM and Youth with a Mission. So I listened to what he said. And he was sharing how when revivals had broken out in different parts of the world during his life, how the Lord had shown him beforehand what was about to happen. And he spoke about prayer and different, uh, you know, someone told me the other day, Revival is not in the Bible, the word revival. I said, neither is the word toilet, but I still go to the toilet. You know, but the word, the word revival, uh, it, it, it speaks about something. Uh, it speaks about outpourings. It speaks about visitation of the Spirit. It doesn't matter what title you give it. It doesn't matter if the word revival is not in the Bible. Some people just want to argue about anything. And, you know, uh, I was listening to him, and he said something that I've heard over and over and over again recently. Uh, he said, That the Lord has shown him that the greatest move the world has ever seen is about to take place. And people are going to come to the Lord 
you know, literally in their millions all over the world. How many of you have heard what's happening in Reading? Heard what's happening in Reading? Yeah. My friend, uh, Yinka Oyakan, he's a Nigerian. He's married to a red-headed Scottish lady. He's a black man leading a white church. His church is about 95% white. And uh, they started going out on the streets three months ago. I, was, I actually spoke at his conference just about a month ago. And when they started going out on the streets of Reading, they found suddenly that people were responding. And on an average day, they would get 15, 20, 30 people giving their lives to Christ. English people on the streets. And giving their phone numbers and giving their emails. Well, you know that's a bit unusual. If you don't, try it on the streets here. And they were giving their, their phone numbers, they were giving their emails, and, um, and they were saying they could be con contacted. And so, uh, I think that started, if I remember rightly, on the 29th of May. And there was prayer in the background, because they would meet in their, in their church, they would pray for a few hours every night, then go and sleep, and then go out on the streets. And they found that in a short period, uh, several weeks, uh, I think it was two or three months, over uh, about now, I think it's about 2,500 people have committed their lives to the Lord on the streets. And Yinker is quite a level-headed guy. He, he said, I'm not calling it a revival. I'm just calling it a move of God. And you know, some people are skeptical. They, they, they ask him the question, well, are those people in the church? I, I asked him, I said, how are you going to follow up those people? Because you've got 2,500 people. He said, Ian, you asked the right question. He said, I'm going to train every single person in the church to disciple one person. And that's the way we're going to follow up these people. Amen. So get ready. I'm hearing the Holy Spirit say through national leaders all over the place, get ready. I believe there's a move of God coming to Britain. And when the move of God comes, we need all hands on deck. Amen. It's not, uh, you know, uh, my pastor always used to say, in this ship, everyone's a crew member. There's no passengers. So everybody needs to get involved. Amen? And so let me just read this to you. The Red River Revival. This book is written by a, a friend of mine. And he's done a lot of extensive research uh, on outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. The Red River Revival, 1800 to 1806. The instrument God chose to use for this revival was a Presbyterian minister called James McGreedy. He taught that revival comes from God and must be preceded by people in covenant with God in a commitment to holiness and prevailing prayer. He sought the most ungodly, irreligious place in America as an area where his teaching on revival could be proven. The spot he chose was the Logan County, Kentucky, along the Red River. Here, great lawlessness abounded. Murderers, horse thieves, highway robbers. Oh, see, the devil's tried everything today, but he always loses. <laughs> so great lawlessness abounded. Murderers, horse thieves, highway robbers, and counterfeit. A counterfeiter swarmed. Convicted criminals and wanted criminals that had fled the long arm of the law or escaped imprisonment all came to this part of the country. They nicknamed the place Rogue's Harbor. Other common names for it was the Devil's Den, 
or outlaw's haven and Satan's stronghold. It was considered at that time the most wicked place in the country. So many desperados and ungodly people had settled there. When an attempt was made by vigilantes to run the outlaws out, the outlaws uh, ran out the vigilantes and burnt down their houses and killed those who refused to run. James McCready had pastored in North Carolina and succeeded to get 700 people to sign and commit to a covenant of personal holiness and to promise to pray and intercede with God until he sends revival to Logan country. 700 people covenanted that they would pray for revival until it happened. These people were asked to pray without ceasing. The covenant was to pray until either revival came out or they died. Having successfully got 700 people committed to this covenant in North Carolina, he now moved to Logan country himself. He established three small congregations of 15 people, 10 people, and 25 members, respectively. These people were asked to pray every Saturday night and devoted the third Saturday of each month for fasting. They were to shun sin and every evil vice. He actually got them to sign the covenant. The first sign of the revival began at a quarterly communion service in the summer of 1799. At the end of a three-day event, God moved upon the small congregation of about a hundred. Some of the worst sinners in that part were thoroughly converted. The news of their conversion spread everywhere. By the next communion service, a crowd of 500 attended, and they had to hold a meeting outdoors. On the last day, God poured his spirit, and the floor, uh, sorry, he put it, wrong page, poured his spirit out, and the, the floor was full of people who had been slain in the spirit. What happened? The Holy Ghost had landed. They met the condition, and the Holy Ghost landed. Holiness and prayer is the divine formula for the heaven to zip open and come down. The following year, just one more paragraph, another communion service was organized. That happened. What happened baffled everyone. Approximately 15,000 people came. The news of the former visitation of God spread everywhere. They held an open-air camp meeting for three days. This actually was the beginning of the history of camp meetings. Revival fire fell. Rogues Harbor and the entire Logan country was totally transformed. What was known to be the most immoral place in the nation was declared the most moral and saintly place in the country. The revival spread, uh, spread from Kentucky through the entire nation and became known in American history as the Second Great Awakening. Don't you long for stuff like that to happen in Britain? I'm sure... Amen. I'm sure you've heard of the vision of Jean Darnell. Uh, Peter used to work for Elma. Jean and Elma Darnell were, were powerful people, especially Jean. She was used right across Britain during the charismatic movement in the 70s and 80s and beyond. But she had a vision, and I'm sure you must have heard of it before. She had a vision, and we heard it over and over again because we were in Christian Life College. And... Uh, in the vision, she had this vision three times, which was very significant. And in this vision, she was standing, uh, her feet were on Great Britain. And she suddenly was taken up in the spirit, and she went higher and higher. And her first impressions was, uh, what a green country this is. Britain is a very green country. It's to do with the rain. And Scotland's even greener. 
Uh, and so she, as she went up, she saw England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, and how green it was. And uh, from that bird's eye view, suddenly Great Britain turned into a clump of jade. And little fires broke out all over the country. And as she was watching these fires, the Lord said to her, pockets of power. And then suddenly, a streak of lightning came from heaven and hit Great Britain. And those fires joined together and the whole of Britain was ablaze. And then the fires started going across the channel and going uh, to the nations of the world. And she had this vision three times. And she asked the Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord said, those little fires are groups of my people that I'm preparing for a visitation upon this land. The streak of lightning was a visitation of God coming down. When it happens, I suppose we'll call it revival, even though that word's not in the Bible. The streak of lightning was God the Father coming down upon this nation, and the whole of Britain was ablaze. And then what she heard, what the Holy Spirit said to her, every single person in Britain will hear the gospel during that time. And incidentally, she had that vision in 1967. And Smith Wigglesworth in 1947 prophesied something similar to what Lauren Cunningham said. He said, the greatest revival the world's ever seen will come after, and he specified two revivals which have already taken place. And so, if this is true, and this is about to happen, there's going to be a mighty harvest. So just suppose it happened in South America. Just suppose what happened in South America happens here. When Carlos Anacondia was preaching in one particular place, he told the people, go to a local church tomorrow. And a church of 100 people had about 15,000 people show up. What would you do if that happened? <laughs> Run out of chairs, yeah. I mean, is it inconceivable that such a, th such a thing could happen in Britain? Maybe it'll never happen. But I think something similar is about to happen. And the amount of prayer that's been going on in Britain, I'm involved in prayer movements, there's more prayer going on in this nation than has ever gone on before. And there are prayer movements that have been praying for revival. And God always responds to much prayer. Amen. You know, Amy Semple McPherson, uh, she was a, a controversial woman. But she was an apostolic ministry ahead of her time. And Jean and Elmer spoke very well of her and said, a lot of the things that the press say about her are not true. In fact, Billy Graham said something about Amy Semple McPherson. And Jean Darnell wrote him a letter and said, some of the things you said about her are not true. And she got a letter of apology from Billy Graham. Because they were there. She made this uh, statement. She had a church of 5,000. It was the largest church of its kind in the world. And uh, she saw amazing miracles uh, taking place. And uh, the whole side of the church was full of wheelchairs and, uh, you know, crutches and things like that because of the miracles that God did there. And she was definitely a woman of prayer. And there was a lot of prayer that went on in that ministry. She said this, all heaven is bent to listen to the prayers of the despised humble group whose presence men ignore as they meet in the upper room. The minister who goes out with tarrying in prayer is an ambassador without his authorization papers. The revival on the day of Pentecost was not worked up, it was prayed down. Let's have a look at Acts chapter 2. Very well known passage. If I don't hear pages rustling, I assume you've 
looking it up on your phone, not texting someone. Acts chapter 2. This is the New Testament equivalent of what happened to Solomon. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven. Look at Acts 2. We know it well. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly, there came a sound from heaven. I love that. While these guys were praying on the earth, they said there came a sound from heaven. So while they were sitting on the earth and praying, they heard a sound that came from heaven, the place where Mary is right now. They heard a sound coming from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each one of them. So there were these uh, tongues of fire that came upon all of the 120 people. And it came as a result of the prayers on the earth. A sound came from heaven, and fire came down from heaven, and the rest is history. Isn't that right? If we want to see what happened there today, we've got to do what they did then. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, it's a sad statistic, and I don't know if it's still true, but I've heard this said. And it was true when I read it, that 60% of churches in Britain do not have a prayer meeting. Talk about little prayer. We're talking about no prayer. 60%. And we're going right across the board with all the traditional churches. And in many churches, sometimes it's just a one and a half hour prayer meeting once a week. Absolute minimum. And uh, I went to a meeting in Marsham Street in, I think it was the year 2000, Rod and Julie Anderson. And uh, Cindy Jacobs was there. And uh, they called all the pastors up to the front. We all went up to the front. And then I didn't know Cindy Jacobs, but she came over to me. And she prophesied and said, one day you will have 24-7 prayer in your church. Well, I didn't know what that was. And she said, one day that will happen. So uh, I put it on the shelf and uh, uh, gave it a little thought over the years. And then in 2007, I decided to visit IHOP in Kansas City because they were praying around the clock there. And I decided to visit Ken Gott in Sunderland, who's a friend, because he had organized 24-7 prayer there. And uh, this is how we started in 2007. All we did was the Lord led me to a, a lady, that lady I said who used to pray eight hours a day as an intercessor for a ministry. Uh, the Lord led me to her, and I asked her if she would pray in the church every day for two hours, five days a week. That was the beginning of our 24-7. We haven't got there yet. We're a long way off. In our office was a young lady called Caroline Charles, the daughter of Mr. Motivator. You remember Mr. Motivator? Yeah. She was working in our office at the time. And she had gone uh, on holiday to the Caribbean. And she came back after a few weeks and walked into the building and said, Pastor Ian, the atmosphere is different here. That's just with two hours prayer. Two hours prayer a day happening in our building our staff member, who hadn't been there for a few weeks, walked in and felt the difference. Amen. 
And that was a little more than a little prayer. And so we've stepped it up a bit. We have people praying at different times. And I believe we're living in a day when God is calling churches to become houses of prayer. Amen? It may not be your primary vision. It's our primary vision. But every church needs to be a house of prayer. Jesus said, if it's my house, it must be a house of prayer. When he went in to the uh, outside of the temple where, you know, people should have been worshiping and praying, proselyte Jews were meant to be praying there, they were meant to be worshiping there. When he saw other activities going on, he came in and you know what he did? He turned the tables upside down and he... Uh, began to throw the furniture all around the place. And I put it this way. He began to rearrange the furniture for prayer. And then when he rearranged the furniture, you see this in Matthew 21. He rearranged the furniture for, for prayer. And it said, then the blind and the lame came in. And miracles started happening when the place was cleared for prayer. And it's the same in your life. When you clear the decks for prayer in this temple, because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If there's all kinds of stuff in here, Jesus wants to come and rearrange the furniture so that you become a house of prayer. Amen. So wherever you go, you pray and things change. I, I gave this illustration. This meeting finishes 3.30, is that right? <laughs> I, I was driving down the road and uh, I saw this young boy on a bike. This is St. Michael's near Tokington. And as he was going along, a car hit him. And he was thrown into the air. And he went up like this, and then he turned around. And I'm driving down the road, and I can see him down there like 60 meters away. And as I saw him go up like this, and his head coming down, I prayed. I said, Lord, save his life. You know, I, I, I can't remember what I said. I, I bind the spirit of death or something like that. I said, save his life. Keep him safe, Lord. Don't let him die. And he was going through the air like that. And he came down and I heard his head hit the pavement. And I was expecting to see blood. But as I drove up to him, he got up, got on his bike and cycled off. I wanted to say, excuse me, Jesus just saved your life, but I didn't have time. Why? Because there was a mobile prayer unit nearby. There was a house of prayer. There was someone who was praying. And God's calling you to be that person. Whether you're in a restaurant whether you're in a cinema. We've had rowdies in cinemas, you know, at times. I just take authority, bind the devil, and they become quiet. I teach school teachers. Something we learned from Jean Darnell. How to take authority. Jean Darnell used to teach school teachers to walk around their school and pray and take authority and to bind the devil before going into the classroom. And the kids would be completely different. My wife does a lot of panel working with, with young offenders. And sometimes, you know, they're horrendous things that she's dealing with. And she'd have, you know, whenever she goes on panel, we always pray. And, you know, the, we always bind the devil off that whole panel. And she's got a reputation now of being someone who really knows what she's doing, which is true. But they don't know that we pray as well. Amen. Much prayer. Much power. Little prayer, little power, no prayer, no power. Wherever you look, you see it in the life of Jesus. A long while before day, he was up. God wants you to be a house of prayer.
He wants you to be a mobile prayer unit. He's calling you to dwell in the secret place of the Most High. I believe the most important thing that you can do in your life, the most important thing you could do, is to make sure that you get quality time alone with the Lord every day. I found it hard when my kids were young to have that time. But I'm sure you've heard of John Wesley's mom. I think she had 19 children. I think she lost 10 of them, 19 or 20 children. Anybody here want 20 children? Nigel will pray for you. (laughs) She had something like that. It was around 20. She lost 10 of them. But in her home, she would put an apron or a towel over her head every day. Some say two hours. But the one I heard was one hour. One hour a day or two hours a day she would pray. She produced John Wesley and Charles Wesley who changed the face of this nation. And they too were praying people. If you go to the Wesleyan Chapel, anybody been there? Yeah. I tell you what, it's an experience. You go into John Wesley's bedroom and you can feel the presence of God. It's still residue. It's in the walls. And you go into the chapel and you see where John Wesley was. A man who touched the world and brought economic, social, and spiritual change to this nation. Uh, You see where he prayed. Now, you know, I've tried to do what he did, and I'm not able to do it. But he would get up at 4 o'clock every morning to pray for a few hours. And he demanded everyone in his house did the same. Mind you, they went to bed at 9, and there was no Sky TV. So seven hours is not bad. Seven hours sleep, they'd get up at four and they'd pray. Much prayer in the Wesley family. Much power to even change nations. So wherever you look, whether you look in 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat called the people to fasting and prayer and got a strategy of praise, whether you look in the book of Esther, where Esther, through Mordecai, called all the Jewish people to fasting. Fasting and prayer go together even though the word prayer is not mentioned there. For the three days of fasting she fasted with her handmaidens and then she called all the Jews. That's one of the biggest turnarounds in the Bible where the Jewish people were about to be exterminated through the demonic Haman. And she called the people to prayer and fasting and a whole nation was delivered as they gave themselves to much prayer. Amen. You see it? In Jonah, the, the, the amazing thing about Jonah was that it was, a, it was a Gentile nation. But when they heard the message, and they, they fasted, even the dogs and the cats fasted. And God delivered them. You see it in the book of Joel. Three times a trumpet is blown. And they're called to fast, and they're called to pray. And it says, it shall come to pass afterwards that I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. And Derek Prince said, the afterwards is after prayer and fasting. The whole context of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the nations, the days we're living in today, is in the context of much prayer. And wherever people give themselves to much prayer, the Holy Spirit will come down. Amen. Let me end by reading this. And uh, I just want to read this to you. It's a little uh, bit about... William Seymour. How many have heard of William Seymour? See, only Pastor Nigel's heard of everyone. What about the rest of you? (laughs) William Seymour. He was born 
1870 and died in 1922. He only lived 52 years or so. But I want to read this and then I'm going to end. Hearing a message doesn't change your life. Responding to it does. So it's the response we make to what we've heard today. Maybe like Angela, you may commit yourself to pray an hour a day. That's what I teach people to do. Maybe as a family, you're going to start praying together on a regular basis. We keep our prayers quite short when we pray together, often five minutes. When you're praying with your family, you don't read Psalm 119 to the kids. You put them off for life. All right. William Seymour. At the turn of the century, this is as we went into the 1900s, revival fires began burning in certain places of the world. The Welsh revival came in late 1904 under Evan Roberts. He was one of them. The Sialkot revival in Punjab, India, under Praying Hyde that burst out in 1905-1906 was another these happened around the same time. Indeed, the 10 years from 1901 to 1910 was termed the revival decade. Other nations that reported revival fires within this decade were Australia, New Zealand, and Japan, Indonesia, Scandinavia, Korea, China, to mention a few. Los Angeles, California was another place where revival fires were brewing. May it happen in Wembley and Sydenham in London. The entire city was already on the verge of a great spiritual happening. In the midst of this, there was one man in particular that availed himself unto the Lord, making the revival a reality. That man was William Seymour. He was a black man. And he was living at a time where black people were very marginalized. In other words, he did not have uh, the capacity uh, to influence people very much. But he was a man who started to pray. He started praying for three hours every day, asking for God's Glorious manifestation, not only in his own life, but in the world. Here's a black man in the early 1900s who was marginalized. When he went to Bible school, they didn't let him sit in the room with the white people. He had to sit in the corridor. So he was marginalized. But this man was William Seymour. He was a black man. He had one eye, and his name was Seymour. And I think he saw more than most people. And God has a sense of humor. He prayed for three hours a day, and nothing seemed to happen. So he increased it to five hours daily. He prayed for 18 months. All this time, he was working in a restaurant for eight hours daily. He wanted to give up praying. When he heard an inner voice saying to him, increase your prayer to seven hours, he protested, but decided to give it a try. He prayed for another six months or thereabout, and one day, the power came with such an effusion that it sparked a revival that became known worldwide as the Azusa Street Revival. A leading evangelist of the time, John G. Lake, who had established you know, hundreds of churches and seen hundreds of thousands of people healed, he said this. He met William Seymour. I think he was Canadian or American, or, and he was living in South Africa. But he, John G. Lake said this. He said he had more of God in his life than any man I've ever met. The presence of God was felt in his life because of the much prayer. Through much prayer... William Seymour brought God onto the scene. He also brought God upon his own life. He became God-touched, God-illuminated, God-inflamed, and God-empowered. His utterances became pointed and barbed. They transfixed the crowds with convicting force and saving power. And so on. There's more there. Much prayer, much power, little prayer, 
little power. It doesn't matter whether you're 12 years old, 18 years old, going to university or just finished university, or whether you're very elderly. In fact, because the Lord's given it to me, let me close with this scripture. Look at Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Just flash through my mind. I want to read it to you. Because you're never too young to start a prayer life. I taught my Sarah to pray when she was six years old. She used to pray in tongues and read the Bible. She's following the Lord today, even though she had a little time in the world. In Luke 2, verse 36. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. This woman was a widow of about 84 years old who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord. Here was a woman who engaged in much prayer, and she was one of the first to see the Messiah. I tell you what, you will see Jesus. He'll come much more into focus when you give yourself to much prayer. And if you give yourself to much prayer, I want to challenge people to pray an hour a day. That's what I challenge people to do. That's what I challenged my daughter to do when she was 12. And as you give yourself to much prayer, it's not that you're trying to please God or that he loves you anymore. He loves you even if you don't pray. He loves you even if you don't eat. But you'll die if you don't eat. God loves you even if you don't sleep. But you'll die. God loves you even if you don't pray. But when you pray, something of God comes in your life in a deeper way than before. And you're never the same again. Let's stand together. The greatest thing we can do is make a fresh commitment to prayer. Every time I do this, I recommit myself again to the Lord to give myself to much prayer. I want to be known in heaven and in hell as someone who prays. The devil fears people who pray. He does everything in his power to stop us from praying. And I don't think we should allow him to have his way. He's a bully. He tries to mesmerize us. He tries to hypnotize us. He tries to get us addicted to the wrong things. But when we give ourselves to much prayer, we're on the way up, drawing closer to God, experiencing greater intimacy. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you will take this message and that it will bear much fruit, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that it won't just be another message we've heard and give it points out of ten. I pray that it'll be a message that's impacting all of us, everyone here and everyone under the sound of my voice, wherever this message goes. Help us to be people of much prayer, not in a legalistic way, but in a joyful way to receive more grace. So, Father, I just pray for everyone. As we make a declaration, as we make a commitment, you'll take us into places where we've never been before. You know, Lord, if we want to go where we've never been before, we've got to do what we've never done before. And if you always do what you've always done, you'll always be what you've always been. So, Lord, help that to change in all our lives concerning prayer. Right now, Holy Spirit, brood over us. Captivate our hearts. Draw us closer to Jesus. 
Help us to know what it means. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll ask whatever you desire and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. We want to abide in you. We want to be be intimate with you. Teach us how to pray holistically. Engaging in worship, engaging in petition, engaging in contrition, engaging in spiritual warfare. And binding the devil and stopping him from doing what he wants to do. So as you open your heart, you'd be free to lift your voice. You want to lift your hands, lift your hands, whatever you feel comfortable doing. And let's make a declaration together. If you want to commit yourself to much prayer and receive grace on your life to do it, there's grace here being released. Just say this with me. Heavenly Father, I open my heart to you. I pray that you'll give me the grace to engage in much prayer. I pray that your power will be released in full measure in my life so that I can help others more effectively. So Lord, in Jesus' name, take my life, fill me with your spirit and release the spirit of prayer in my life right now. I receive that grace in the name of Jesus. I just begin to thank Him. Father, we thank You. We praise You. We receive that spirit of prayer on our lives, on our homes, on our families, on the younger ones, on the children, on the youth. Bless this house, Lord. Make it a house of prayer for the nations. Thank You for that increase in this particular area. Thank you for all the good things in this church. Thank you for the Alpha Course coming up. But we pray, Lord, for an increase in this particular area that we will grow, that we will engage in much prayer, that we will see much power, not only in our own lives, but flowing through us to others to bring change, to release the miraculous. May we be Psalm 91 people that whenever we call, you answer. You're with us in trouble. You deliver us and honor us. With long life, you satisfy us and show us your salvation. So we receive that grace and strength in Jesus' name. I wonder if you just for a few seconds, just take the hand of the person on your left, on your right, and just pray for them. We pray for one another, Lord, as we've shared this time together, as we've heard this message together. We pray for one another. We pray for every man, every woman, every child in this church, every married couple, every parent all the children and all the youth. Bless this church. Strengthen this church. Thank you for much fruit. And thank you for increase, particular, particularly in this whole area of prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We pray for one another. Strengthen each one. Increase us in this area with your mighty power. Father, thank you for that, Lord. We receive that and we thank you for it. Bless our dear brothers and sisters and every person, even those that's missing today. Bless them. Minister to them. May they know your protection, your provision, your guidance, your help, your leading to bear much fruit. Thank you for that, Lord. We give you praise. We give you praise. We give you praise in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.